good to see you here. Uh, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Joel, and uh, my privilege this morning to uh, lead us as we explore God's Word together and as we wrap up our Hot Topics series. I don't know about you, um, maybe enjoyment. Enjoyment might be the wrong word, I don't know. I've found it, I've enjoyed it, but I like big discussions and stuff, and it's certainly led to some good discussions. I know we get home on Sunday and, you know, oh, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? And we have some good discussions. We've had it in our, in our life groups and stuff as well. And, yeah, I hope, you know, it's sort of been since the start of August now we've been going through this. So I hope it's um, been encouraging for you. It's been challenging that it's been um, a time of growth as we've wrestled with some, some tough topics, some things that aren't always so clear. Um, and as we dive into God's Word, I, I pray this morning as well that um, things will be, um, that God will speak to us. And uh, this morning, uh, if you're unaware, we're looking at the last one, which is the top right one. It's not quite the last one on there, but um, we're looking at discernment. Now, um, often when the Bible talks about discernment, it talks about um, discerning between sort of a good choice and a bad choice, you know, knowing God's will. Uh, but we're more probably talking about this morning in terms of discerning truth and sort of dealing with false teachers, dealing with um, people who try and um, lead the church astray through teaching and uh, how do we deal with that? How do we protect the church? And I think particularly in today's society, like if you think about our current society, like you think about the amount of teaching that you have access to currently. Like you can access teaching, Christian teaching or Christian teaching from the last 2,000 years. You can go online, you can go to a library, you can find books, you can find sermons, you can find literature from, you know, authors from the 4th century all the way through to today. And then if you just think about today, you know, you can access a blog or a video or a website or a sermon from any church or any Christian across the whole world. You know, anyone can write an article, anyone can post a little video. And, and so we have access to so much teaching. And, and I guess as I've, been re- as I've been sort of preparing for this over the last few weeks, you know, and got a couple pages of notes that I've tried to sort of condense into a little sermon today, is that in and amongst all that teaching that we have access to, we need to be aware that there's false teaching in that. Like the Bible takes this issue very seriously. It talks about it a lot in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. And um, so we really need to sort of take heed to the warnings and, and actually look at what does the Bible tell us to do in that. You know, if Jesus, you know, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, his most famous probably, you know, bit of teaching, you know, sitting down with probably hundreds of people and right towards the end he says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Like Jesus describes these false teachers, false prophets as ravenous wolves. They're not just people who are sort of just sitting back on their couch, you know, posting a few things, hoping that like, one or two people will read it. Do you know that Jesus describes them as ravenous wolves? I don't know if you can picture a ravenous... Like, it's an active, like, hunting animal coming out to try and lead sheep astray, you know, to lead us astray. And so, recognizing that the enemy is actually active in this. And later on in Mark, and later on in Jesus' life, he says, for false prophets and false Christs, they will arise... And they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I've told you all these things. I think this one's on the next slide, this verse. Because there's a couple of things that Jesus says, they will arise. 
Not they might, not potentially it may happen, but they will arise. And he even says that they'll perform signs and wonders. And here's like a big thing for us, um, that just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's true. Or just because it looks good doesn't mean it's true. Jesus says, many will perform signs and wonders in my name, and yet, you know, they'll get to him and he'll say, I I never knew you. So how then do we discern what's true or not? If If it looks good, but it doesn't really mean it's true. And so we're going to get into this a bit. And um, you can see some dogs are there. Apparently dogs are super cute and everyone loves dogs. Um, so I thought, and, off, and so I think this is the picture for me of the two extremes that most people, um, that you can see when it comes to false teaching, okay? So on the left there, you have Archie. You can see him a little bit. That's, um, that's our pup. That's our dog. Um, now, I'm a, I don't really like dogs, but I love Archie. So if you hear some bias in what I talk, it's not because... This is what I think of the extremes and stuff, but just, I like Archie, all right? But um, Archie, he loves everyone, okay? You're like, he will come up to anyone. If you come into our house, you come into our backyard, he'll just come up to you. He'll look at you with, like, these sad puppy eyes. He, like, always looks sad, but he's, he's milking it, I reckon, because everyone, likes feels sorry for him, and they pat him, and he, he loves the attention. And, um, but the other thing about Archie, he's a terrible guard dog. Like, he would do nothing to protect us, I reckon. Like, anyone, anyone could walk into our backyard and be threatening, you know, do anything they want. Don't get any ideas, by the way. But they could come in and Archie will just walk up to them and love them. And you can ask my family, they'll back me up. It's, it's 100% true. Um, and I think often this can be one extreme that we come to when it comes to false teaching. And I see, particularly in young people, is that we just accept everything. We love everyone, and we just accept every bit of teaching that comes to us. It sounds good, it looks good, it makes me feel good, and therefore, you know, we just take it on board and we'll figure the rest out later. And particularly in sort of our culture, our postmodern sort of society, you know, it's sort of like, oh, it's true for them, it's not necessarily true for me, but I'm just going to accept it, and, you know, it all gets very hazy very quickly. And I think um, we need to be aware of that extreme because it, it is dangerous. You know, Jesus says, you know, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because a little bit of yeast ruins the whole dough. So even just a little bit of this false teaching can actually lead us astray. And so we need to be aware not to be an Archie, okay? Don't be Archie, even though he's super cute. The other extreme is um, the sniffer dog. I don't know what the sort of politically correct term is for a sniffer dog, but I've named him Bruno just because of... In Uganda, in Subi House, there's a dog called Bruno, and um, he's a guard dog, and I've had some run-ins with Bruno. Um, that's all I'll say. I don't want to give away my voice too much. But, um, Bruno, sniffer dog, I mean, have you ever been to an airport and watched, like, people's reactions to sniffer dogs? Like, people get freak. people freak out even though they're completely innocent. They get all nervous around these dogs, and, you know, these dogs are going around everywhere. And, and these dogs, you know, they're trained in such a way that they find more joy in finding a fault than they do in finding someone that's innocent. And I think that is the danger for us when it comes to sort of uh, false teaching. I mean, I've certainly had this. I've sort of, you know, at Bible college, you know, we get taught to sort of critique different views and see whether they're biblical or not. And um, so often I can go into a church or into a conference or something and I, I'm like twiddling my thumb. I'm like this. I'm like... 
I've heard things about this church. I've heard things about this, this preacher. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting to find a fault rather than listening to what God has to say. Do you know? And in fact, if I'm really honest, I'll, I'll probably get a lot more joy if I found the fault. You know, because then I can like, I can write that I've found, you know, I've exposed this false teacher. And I, do you know, do you know what I mean? Like that we get actually more joy in finding fault than we do in hearing God's truth. And I think we need to be aware of that extreme as well. Because I think if we're finding more joy in like finding people are wrong and critiquing them and, you know, I think often that can come from a very sort of pride um, place, a place of pride, that, you know, we're, we're sort of focusing on the wrong things. Now, I'm not saying either of those two are right or wrong. I think they're extremes and somehow we need to find a place in the middle where we want to be discerning we want to be on guard, as Jesus says. We want to sniff out danger, but we also want to be loving. We want to have mercy on people. And we want to hear God's voice, and we want to hear his good news wherever it is preached and taught. So that's sort of where we're going this morning. We want to sort of look to the Bible and find, find out how do we navigate this middle ground. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to keep them open this morning because we're going to go through the book of Jude. Maybe the first time you've ever heard that one in church. Um, it is a tiny book right before Revelation. Um, it is one chapter, 24 verses, 25 verses, one page, um, right before Revelation. And um, we're going to read the whole thing. We're going to read a whole book of the Bible this morning. So you can tick that one off your list. Um, if you're unsure of Jude, if you've sort of never heard of Jude, not sure who he is, um, he introduces himself in the first couple of verses. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. Um, now, we know James. James wrote the letter of James. Um, and James was the leader of the church at the time, the leader of probably the Jerusalem church. And um, we know that James was the brother of Jesus. So when Jesus was on earth, he had a number of brothers. Um, the gospel lists at least four. And it says James. And one of the other ones is mentioned is Judas. Um, and so, most likely, this Jude that we read about is, he's sort of changed his name from Judas, as you would understand in the church, before he became a bit of a dirty word. Um, and so he became Jude, and so he's a brother of James, most likely a brother of Jesus as well. And he's become a leader in the church, and he writes to, most likely he's most writing to a Jewish audience. Um, so as we read through, there'll be a few stories that, and a few names that come up that will sort of make sense from the Old Testament perspective. Um, but there'll be a few things that are alluded to that you go, what is that about? Um, and so I just want to explain quickly before we get into it that it's most likely that they're quotations from a book called One Enoch. One Enoch was a Jewish book around the time. It's sort of Jewish piece of literature. Uh, it wasn't part of the Hebrew sort of Bible, but it was sort of an important piece of work at the time um, that was there that most people knew. And so particularly the Jews, they would know this book, they know the stories within it, and that's what Jude quotes from. So if you hear a few stories and go, I've never read that before, I've never heard that before, I wasn't taught that in Sunday school, it would have been a cool story in Sunday school, um, but it's from one Enoch, all right? So just as we read through, be aware of that. So we're going to read through, um, and we'll pick up from verse 3, um, where Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you were once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, they afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under doomy doomy darkness, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they destroy all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of, our, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. There you go. So, so Jude writes to this church, and he said, you know, I was going to write to you first about something much, much bigger than this, but something more urgent has come up, which is the issue of false teaching. And, and what does he call people to do? Right in the start in verse 3, he says, I urge you, I appeal to all of you to contend for the faith. That's our first call this morning, that we're called to contend for the faith. The Greek word, it's the only time this word is used um, 
in, in the Bible. It's a sort of compound word, so you take two words and put them together, and you get this word. The first word is um, epi, which means on or focused on, and the second word is agonizomai. Agonizomai, I don't know if I said that right, that sounds about right. Um, but agonizomai, it means to contest or to struggle or to strive for. It was used... Um, it was used often in races that people would sort of agonizomai to the end. They would sort of, you know, struggle and strive to finish. Um, it's where we get our word agonize from. That's the sort of, that's where we get our word. So, so Jude is calling us to sort of contend for the faith, to struggle for it, to strive for it, to sort of agonize over it. That we'd sort of contend earnestly for the faith. That that's our call. And what I love about this letter to, that Jude writes is that he's not writing to the elders. He's not writing to sort of certain people. He's not writing to those who are gifted or anything. He's writing to the whole church and saying, all of you have to contend for the faith. Not just some of you. This is not just the role of some people. You know, this issue of false teaching, it's not just some people's role and task to look after. This is all of us. He's saying all of you are to contend for the faith. You know, I don't know if you've seen ever on Facebook the... Um, the animal battles that occur. There's videos about you know animals that bat- and it's, they make crazy scenarios and stuff. And um, if you put like a sheep against a wolf, who's winning that battle? The wolf, yeah. What if we like change the numbers a bit though? What if we made it like a hundred sheep to a wolf? Do you know then it starts to change things, yeah. I reckon I'll give us maybe a slight chance. Yeah, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, if we get the numbers in our favor, and so it's not just something that some of us can do. If the sheep are going to defeat the wolf, we all need to be a part of this. We all need to contend for the faith. And we also have a really good shepherd who is on our side, and we'll talk about that after. It's a bit of a, um, you know, kind of wins the battle for us, but we'll talk about that later. So we all need to contend for the faith. Because we should all be concerned about false teaching. And, and the best way to combat false teaching is to struggle and to strive and to agonize and to you know, contend for a true expression of the gospel. That the true gospel would be lived out and would be expressed. Not just from pulpits, but within life groups, within our homes, within our ministries. That everywhere our church is, that we would contend to see the true gospel lived out. And that is a role of everyone, not just the role of some within a church. Now for me, the big thing is when we talk about contending, when we talk about striving and struggling, you know, I was thinking this week that, that you fight for what you value. You fight for what you value. If you think about the latest sort of arguments or discussions or talks that you've had you know often you know sometimes they're a bit silly but sometimes often it's usually linked to something that you that you value that you value this and therefore you fight for it if you think of like the whole same-sex marriage debate at the moment you know people are fighting that based on what they value so people value god's word and his design for marriage and so we fight for that we value freedom of speech we fight for that other people sort of value equality though might be a bit distorted, you know, but they, they fight for that. And so you fight for what you value. And so my big thing this morning, and I think, you know, for some of us, this is all we need to hear this morning, that actually we need to value the gospel. 
We need to value the gospel. If, if we're going to fight, if we're going to contend for it, if we're going to protect it from false teaching, then we actually need to value the gospel. That it's actually good news. You know, because unless we see it as good news, then, you know, what are we doing trying to protect it? You know, we really need to believe that this is good news, that is the gospel, that, you know, that we're, that we need to know that we're, Broken, sinful people, unable to save ourselves, yet Jesus Christ gives his life up and, and that we have life in him and that's good. You know, it's like all the verses that we read this morning and the, you know, the songs that we sang, like, do we actually believe that, that God loves us, that he's washed us clean, that his spirit lives within us and that we can have a relationship with him and that you know, through his word and through the spirit we have all we need to live a holy life. Like, that is good news. The fact that God is making all things new. He's going to come and return to earth and judge the living living and the dead and restore all things to perfection. Like, it's good news, yeah? This is like, yes, this is... (laughs) I know your heads say it, but do our hearts really believe it, that this is good news? And the other thing is that it's, it's news. It's not just good, but it's good news. If you think about the news, it's on TV every day. It's an ongoing story. It's not just something that happened in history. It's not just you know, a good lesson that we learn, but it's good news. It's something each and every day we need to broadcast. We need to tell ourselves. It's, it's relevant today just as it was thousands of years ago because it's news. So we need to know that the gospel is good news. And you know, if we're struggling with that, if you sort of don't quite feel that, Ask God. You know, ask God to open our eyes, to reveal himself, to change our hearts, to renew our minds, and so that we'd know that it is by grace that we are saved. And ask people around you to remind you of it. <laughs> Set up other things in your lives to remind you that the gospel is good. And it's when we begin to understand that when we begin to understand that we're saved by grace and that Jesus is the only way to heaven, like when we understand the gospel, then, then we can properly fight it and contend for it. Because that's what the enemy is trying to twist. That's what the ravenous wolves are trying to lead us away from, is the true expression of the gospel. And so when it comes to contending for the faith, I've got this little triangle here that I came across the other week. Um, I think we need to be clear with what we're fighting for. We need to be clear of what we're contending for. And, you know, I believe that, that, we are, that we're called to protect sort of the core message of the gospel. And that if, it falls, if something falls out of that, then it's false teaching. You know, so I think we need to be clear of what do we define as false teaching and what do we find as sort of the core issues. Um, because that's what we, we want to protect, unity. And we, you know, there's some things that I guess maybe might be a bit more secondary that we might sort of agree to disagree. Um, but just because they disagree does not make them a false teacher. All right? So we need to be clear, I think, with our distinctions. And obviously people all around the world probably differ on their thoughts on this. But I found this little pyramid helpful um, in terms of, you know, we have our Catholic, sort of, you know, the Catholic Church, which is sort of not like the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic as in universal church, um, which is pretty much summed up by the Nicene Creed which, uh, if you're unsure of what that is, it basically affirms the Trinity. The, ca- the Nicene Creed really was brought together to affirm the Trinity, that 
God is three persons in one. Each person is God, and God is one. Um, so there's that. Um, but then, obviously, the Reformation happened, you know, 500 years ago. We're going to be talking about the five solas in the next few weeks. Um, that probably defines sort of Protestant churches. Um, they define, you know, so grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. And so we would say they affirm. And then on top of that, you know, we sort of have Reformed um, distinctives confessions. We're talking the Canons of Dort, Belgic Confessions, Tulip, all that sort of stuff. That fits in that top box. Top triangle It's definitely not a box. So for me, I would say bottom two triangles, that is core. That if someone is falling outside of that, I would go, that's false teaching. All right? And so we're going to get a few more um, warning signs in a minute in through Jude in terms of how do we spot these things. But you know, if, if people are beginning to say that Jesus isn't God or saying that you're saved by grace and by works, then you know, I think we've got to be, that's for me, that's warning signs. Yeah, does that make sense? So I feel like that's just a helpful thing for me. I go, okay, something falls out of that, then I go, that's false teaching. And then the top things, that's not to say that they're not important. I do think the Reformed, you know, confessions and all that is super important, but I also see that um, Christian denominations differ on some of these things, like baptism and stuff like that, and yet they still affirm the core of the gospel. And so I think that's helpful. And like I said, as we go through Jude, we'll see a few other things um, that we get warned about when it comes to false teachers. Now, um, if, you, if you're paying attention in Jude, he never, he, never mentioned, he never uses the words false teaching. He just says ungodly people, and, and he, he uses these words for him. He says in verse 4, for certain people... I don't know if those words are ever used in like a positive light. I don't know. It just it sounds like, you know, for certain people have crept in and they've done certain things. And I think the first thing we need to know about false teachers is that, you know, they creep in. They're unnoticed. They're difficult to spot. Like Jesus says, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, but as we go, we get a few helpful clues that Jude gives us. First one in verse 4, he says, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And the passage talks a lot about, you know, it goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual immorality. In verse 8, it says, these people, um, they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh. You know, and so it talks a lot that these people, these certain people, these false teachers are perverting the grace of God. They're twisting the grace of God to cover up and to sort of, I guess, allow themselves to live immoral lives, particularly sexually immoral lives. And so we begin to twist God, we begin to twist grace to sort of suit our own desires. And so we begin to say things like, you know, God's forgiven me, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or, you know, God will forgive me, so it's all good. Or I'm saved by grace, not by works, you know, so, you know, I'm going to get to heaven anyway. It doesn't matter what I do. You know, this is twisting grace. And if you need to read some of Paul's letters to sort of figure out, and you can read his arguments of why those things are twisting grace. But essentially, we twist grace to suit our own sinful desires. You know, I'd say that, you know, if you've heard of the prosperity doctrine, I think that falls in under this sort of category. 
where we twist grace to suit our own sinful desires in the West of greed and gluttony. And that we've twisted grace to say that God will bless me and God will give me all these things because I, I've done this and I've said this and I pray this. And so God will bless us and that means material possessions and everything will go well for me. And we've sort of twisted things to suit our own lives. And I think we need to be aware of that. Be aware of people who twist grace to suit their own desires. The second thing that Jude mentions is they pervert the grace of God and they deny our only master and Lord. You know, and so this one's usually a bit more easier to spot. You know, people who reject Jesus. Um, but you know, one of the interesting things about our, our world at the moment is that pretty much every major religion and every major worldview, um, they don't eliminate Jesus out of the picture. They just twist his significance or his role or his importance or his divinity. You know, think of Islam. You know, Jesus is, is not God, but he's a prophet. Sure, he's important, but he's not that important. You think of um, Hinduism. Yeah, Jesus is he's a god. He's one of thousands. You know, he's in, he, you can listen to him. You can you know, read what he says, but, you know, Jewish faith, you know, yeah, okay, he's a good teacher, good rabbi, but he's not the Messiah. Or if, you know, think of the Mormons, you know, that Jesus is a son of God, he's not the son of God, that he's sort of under God, and they deny his sort of divinity, deny that he is God. Even like some of the, the New Age sort of movement, it's sort of very much that, you know, Jesus is you know, he's a good teacher, he's got good morals, he fights for social justice, you know, read what he says, he's all about love, you know, that's great. Um, but deny that he's sort of a king or a master or that he's needed, it's just, you just read what he says. Now, I think we need to be aware that when people begin to reject Jesus as our Lord and Master, we reject his divinity, um, that, that is a sign of false teaching. And so, Jesus is always, if you read all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is glorified. He is the King. He is worshipped. He is God. The next sign is, if you go in verse 8, it says that these people, they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. I think when people begin to reject authority, particularly the authority of God's word, that that should be a warning sign to us. You know, I've... I, um, I read this week about a pastor in their church. They've got a big church. And um, in, I saw, they showed a picture of their Sunday school. And it was um, basically, at this church, we follow the visionary. The visionary was their pastor. And their kids are sort of getting taught that we follow the visionary. And I thought, that is so like... Like, I understand, you know, leadership and we want to follow leaders and stuff. And in that church, you know, it's particularly like that. But I okay, go, like, that's not really, like, the focus here that this guy has a vision and we're going to follow that sort of blindly. And that, you know, we need to be aware that, you know, these visionaries, people who rely on their own dreams, that's what Jesus says, you know, rely on their own dreams. You know, God showed me this or God's, you know, told me this. You know, that should, not saying that God doesn't do that, but I'm saying that we need to be discerning when it comes to that, I think. Does it line up with what the Bible says? Because if they are relying on their own dreams and rejecting authority, and they're rejecting the authority of the word, 
that is a sign of false teaching. Later on in verse 11, you know, it says, For they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. That often, a lot of the verses in the New Testament about false teaching, it talks about they do it for greed, they do it to exploit people, um, you know, they're smooth talkers, they're itching people, telling them what they want to hear, and they're doing it for the sake of gain. Now, that doesn't mean that every rich preacher is a false teacher, okay? That doesn't mean that, um, but the Bible is clear that it's, it's a warning sign, that when people are doing it for greed, when they're manipulating people, that's a warning sign. And, um, you know, in the end, Jesus says, you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, beware of false teachers, they come to you in sheep's clothing, inwardly are ravenous wolves. But then he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, and I think this is where things sort of begin to sort of make a bit more clarity for me. You know, fruit throughout the Bible is used for three things. It's used for character, it's used for good works, and it's used for sort of new believers and for growth. Um, now, in our day and age, you can easily fake a lot of those things. <laughs> you can fake good character. You can fake good works. You can even fake new believers. I read of a church that they, um, they set up a whole bunch of people to get baptized so that it would encourage other people to spontaneously get baptized. There was this whole sort of manipulation thing, and it's like, that's so, so wrong. But, you know, we can easily fake these things, particularly from a distance, if you, are, if you are far away and if you're just reading things on the internet like I am, then it's easy to fake. The best test of fruit is fruit that you can taste. And so for me, I go, we've got to be close. So I'll, I'll be really concerned about just, you know, calling shots from afar and saying, bang, 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 they're all for, you know, that we've actually, to properly judge it, we've got to be close to it. We've got to be able to taste the fruit. And so... You know, I think for us, we need to be concerned with the teaching in this church and places around us. Now, the Bible does say, you know, in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, I think it says, to expose false teaching. There's a, it, there is an element of sort of exposing what's out there. Um, but I think how much more of our focus should be on what's in and around us and the things that we can taste, the things that we can test properly. Because in the end, and this is where I want to sort of go, because... You know, just talking about all that is sort of a bit like, a bit like, makes you feel a bit like, oh, this is a bit negative, negative Nelly, as my mum would say. Um, but there is positive, and that's where Jude goes, because in the end, we need to recognise what our role is and what God's role is. Because the reason is that, you know, what I've read, if you, you can go and Google this week, go to Bible Gateway or some sort of Bible site and just type in false teachers or false teaching, and read every verse there is on what false teaching... This is what I did throughout the last couple of weeks. The Bible rarely talks about going on the attack and the offense when it comes to false teaching. A lot of the language around it is almost defensive. It's be on guard. It's protect yourselves. It's be aware. It's never sort of go and attack these people, go and judge them... It's very much, I think, a passive, not a passive thing, but does it make sense? Like that sort of defensive mindset. Why? 
Because all the language around these verses is that God will judge them. I mean, that's what we get in, in here. You know, even in verse 9, it says, you know, the archangel Michael, he was contending with the devil, and they were disputing about the body of Moses. Even him, the archangel Michael, he did not presume to pronounce a judgment. They said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord will deal with you. So even like Michael, like the head of the angels, he's like, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to do anything. God will deal with you. I mean, that's what Paul says in Galatians. You know, he says, if anyone, if a man or woman or if angels come to you preaching a different gospel to what I did, let them be accursed. It's let God deal with them, not me. And so while we do need to be on guard, like I said, and like why we do need to expose things, and, you know, in Timothy, Paul names a couple of people. He sort of names a couple of people and says, you know, I've let them go um, because of their teaching. Overall, the message is God will judge them. And we actually need to trust that. We need to have faith in that. We need to actually believe that God will bring things to right. And we don't need to take matters into our own hands in that. Yeah, that's what he says in verse 14 in Jude. He says, you know, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And we need to understand that God will judge. But in that, we have a role. Um, you know, right at the end of verse 22, Jude says, you know, we're to call to have mercy. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. And we need to recognize that we all have doubts. We all have questions. It's the very nature of faith. The very nature of faith is that we won't know everything that we will have questions, we will have doubts. And so we need to have mercy on each other, be patient. And he writes, snatch others from out of the fire. You know, I like that picture of, you know, if we see a brother or sister, remember, this is all of our role. We're all called to contend for the faith. We're all called to look out for each other. That if we see someone falling into the fire, falling into dangerous territory, we need to snatch them out with love, do it gently. Um, but we need to actually look out for each other in that. And I, I think I often don't do that because I'm a bit of an archie. I'm a bit of a like, oh, no, it's fine. We'll just be happy with everyone. But actually, I need to recognize that actually if I see someone, if I hear someone, if I hear language that oh, I'm not quite sure about that or I'm not quite sure about listening to that teaching, that we actually need to snatch each other out and look out for each other. And then Jude writes, to others, have mercy. And, and so... He's listed, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching. And then to others as well, like there's another group and have mercy. And I think, who is he talking about there? He's mentioned those who doubt. He's mentioned those, you know, who are falling into the fire. And for me, I go, maybe he's talking about the ungodly, the false teachers that we're called to have mercy on them. You know? I mean, that's what Jesus calls us to do, isn't it? Love our enemies, bless those who persecute you. That we're actually called to have mercy on on everyone that we come across, to love them. And we do that. You know, if you look at the verse before, verse 21, it mentions the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, here's the mercy of our Lord, and therefore have mercy and have mercy. So actually we do it in light of what we have known. Like we read the verses at the start, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, while we were living the wrong way, while we were sort of probably 
giving an example of what it means to be ungodly. While we were sort of false teachers, if you want to put it that way, you know, we were doing the wrong thing. That's when Christ died for us. He loved us and he reconciled us. And so we used to have that same mercy on those around us. So when it comes to false teaching, don't take the role of eternal judge. That, that's for God to deal with. And I think too often, you know, when, when the Brunos come out, it's aggressive, it's, it's hateful, and it's unloving. And I think when we do that, we actually become false teachers. Like when we are not living the way of love that Jesus commanded, and we're being hateful, then that's actually false teaching because we're giving an example, we're teaching almost in a way of what the opposite of what we're called to do. So in the end, we're to stand firm, we're to be on guard, protect the flock and expose false teaching and be aware of the warning signs and contend for the gospel. We also must trust that God will judge. And so in the end, these verses in Jude, it says, you know, I love what it says. He talks about these false teachers for a number of verses, you know, the certain people. And then in verse 17 and verse 20, he says, but you, but you, beloved. We're to be different. We're not to live in the ways of others, suiting our own sinful desires, but you, beloved, build yourselves up. May that be our faith. May we continue to build ourselves up in the faith. May we pray in the Spirit. May we continue to pray. You know, I just think as a church, we need to be more prayerful. We need to pray more as a church and like engage with prayer more. I know we, we pray a lot in our services, but I want to challenge us. Like, do we actually engage in that? We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. And all of that is, leads to, in verse 21, the imperative verb. So it says, build yourselves up, pray in the Holy Spirit, and the focus of all this is to keep yourselves in love. This is the main part of the verse at the end here, that Jude calls us, but you, be different, keep yourselves in love. That the gospel, that the true expression of it, always should lead us back to be people of love. You know, that's the greatest commandment, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this, the law, the prophets, all of the word is summarized. So may we be loving as a church. May we be discerning as a church. May we find that good mix of Archie and Bruno. May we try and navigate the narrow road in the middle. There would be people who discern the way of truth. And that would do so in a way of love that moves ourselves, that moves our community, the people around us, that would move everyone to follow Christ. Because that's what we want to be on about. And so right at the end, sorry, I've gone on a little bit, but right at the end, there's so much in this chapter, so have a read of it when you get home and go through it again. But right at the end, there's the now unto him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you read that and you could just hear the, uh, the song in your head. But once again, it's the good news. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Now unto him who is able to carry you, to present you blameless before the throne. 
Do you know, there's someone who is going to keep you from stumbling. There's someone who's going to carry you all the way to the judgment room and he's going to present you as blameless before the Father. And that someone isn't you or the person next to you or anyone in this room, but that person is God and God alone. He is the one who will carry us. He is the one who will present us blameless, not because of our work, but because of his grace, not because of what we will do, but because of what he has done. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. And I love that it says that he would do that with great joy. Like just picture that, God carrying us all the way to the judgment room where he will present us blameless and he's going to do it with great joy. It's not going to be a burden to him. It's not going to be like, oh, I'm not sure about this one. But no, because of his love, he'll be in great joy, presenting you blameless before the king. He is the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to him be all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And it's been that way before all time, it is that way now, and it will be that way forever. Amen? Amen. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Um, I'm going to invite our music team up, and we're going to finish off with a song. I'm going to sing in Christ alone. Um, and I would encourage us to really sing this song. Like, you know, it's funny. Like, every church has their songs. You know, you know, their songs that they really sing out with gusto. This was the song, like at MST, when we, you know, this was one of those songs. Like, if we sang this at MST, you knew, like, it was going to go off. Like, people were going to get into it. Um, when we sing it here, it's a bit like, uh, kind of works, kind of. But I want to encourage us that we would actually take these words in and that we'd sing them because I think they summarize the gospel. They summarize what it's all about. And right at the end, it says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. So he returns or calls me home. Safe in the power of Christ I stand. And may we just sing that with... You know, as we stand, would we know that that's the power, that's the gospel, that's the good news, that we stand in Christ and nothing can take us from that place. So let's stand and let's, um, let's sing.